All right, y'all, welcome to the show. So today we're going to discuss Morning Joe coping and seething over Biden's low no low no blah, 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 low poll numbers relative to Donald Trump. Uh, they're not buying it. They're not buying the fact that Biden is down, even though the mountain of evidence is now as tall as Everest. So we'll talk about that. We also have Biden sends out a pathetic letter basically begging young people to support him. If only you were in some position of power where you could do something to maybe earn their votes. I know, crazy. Um, we also have Republicans getting together a committee. Why? To cut Social Security. I mean, this we're talking about this in 2023, but we talk about talked about it in 2022, 2021, 2020, 2019, 2018, like all the way back to like the 1990s, we've been having this same damn conversation. And then later on, you're not going to want to miss this one. North Korea releases an amazing propaganda video where they show Kim Jong-un voting in the election. And, oh, oh, it's so amazing. Like, I, I can't wrap my mind around the fact that anybody thought it was a good idea in North Korean positions of power. Like, I find that incomprehensible because it's the fakest thing I've ever seen. But they were like, Nailed it. Run it. People are going to know that we're a vibrant democracy. Wait for it. So we'll talk about that and much more. So everybody do me a big favor. Please subscribe to the channel. Um, if you subscribe, it helps out massively in the algorithm and it doesn't cost you anything at all. And of course, I'm now trying to catch back up to my wife's channel, her and Sagar over at Breaking Points. They recently surpassed me. Totally unacceptable. I love you, Crystal, with all my heart. But also, I want to be in front of you in the subcat. Okay? So everybody hook a brother up with a sub and make it so that I eventually now surpass them. All right, so let's go ahead and dive into it. The folks over at Morning Joe, I mean, this is like, this goes without saying, but this is like establishment central. You are going to get basically the purest version of corporate Democrat talking points over on Morning Joe. Now, it's funny too, because Joe Scarborough used to be a Republican, but now he's like a standard resistance liberal Democrat. And he's basically like, on the Biden cheerleading squad. So they're going to have a conversation here about all these polls that have come out recently that show Joe Biden down to Trump. And uh, they're going to try to say, uh, don't believe your lying eyes. It's not true. So let's watch and we'll react to it. And I remember Mike Barnacle as we got down the home stretch of the polls. And I remember seeing a poll that showed Joe Biden ahead by 13 points uh, in Wisconsin. And I just tweeted out at that moment, I don't believe any of the polls. And sure enough, they really were. these. A lot of these state polls, especially in the upper Midwest, way off. Um, and then you have this insanity. And this gets to the point of Molly's piece. On election night, several weeks ago, we had real American voters going to real voting booths and we were going to have all the real data from a real election for networks to go over. And another network, whom we won't name, decided that on that night, they were going to drop a poll at 7 p.m. when, when the voting booths closed and they could have actually reported on real numbers. 
And what did the poll show? Joe Biden, it's terrible. It's the end of the world. By the way, all of these polls that are like, you you read the headline, it goes, the worst news ever for Joe Biden. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. He was riding his bike in Delaware and a comet dropped on him, crushing him to death. And then I open up the link and I look at it and they show me three polls where the president of the United States is within the margin of error of a crazy, dangerous man who has has isn't even really in the front of people's minds right now. And Mike, I just sit there think, wait a second. This network had real human beings to talk about, but instead of dealing with voters, they wanted to talk about a poll that would push their narrative about how bad Joe Biden was doing, when in fact, voters from Virginia to Ohio to Kentucky overwhelmingly affirmed just how well the Democrats were doing swimming against the tide. So his claim is, hey, man, Democrats, I don't know why you guys are freaking out. We've had a bunch of elections lately and Democrats are winning. So your fear that like, oh, my God, Biden's so weak, he's going to lose to Trump. Like, what are you what are you talking about? The actual real world evidence cuts in the direction that maybe Democrats are sitting even more pretty than you think. Okay, so let me respond to that. Here's the problem with that argument. Generic Democrats, when you poll people and ask, what do you think about generic Democrat versus generic Republican? Generic Democrat is winning all the time now. All the time. When you poll Trump versus generic Democrat for president, generic Democrat crushes Trump by double digits. So he makes it seem seem like, oh my God, the polls haven't been accurate. Well, they actually have been when it comes to generic Democrat. Like, generic Democrat is succeeding colossally. But once you ask about Biden specifically, that's when the number implodes. Now, okay, Biden against Trump, a guy with 91 criminal charges, a guy who says we should suspend the Constitution, a guy who's planning on doing Project 2025, which is the total destruction of the administrative and regulatory state. Biden should be up 15 points on that guy. See, this is the thing that drives me crazy is like the normalization of like the super tight elections. Because, I mean, obviously we're all too young to live this firsthand, but you can go read a textbook and learn the reality of this. When FDR was president, he won four times. The Republicans were like, we need to do term limits because we'll never beat these guys because they're too popular. FDR won four times. He held 80% of the House and 80% of the Senate at one point. It was crushing victories as far as the eye could see. Why? Because he was actually delivering for people. So people were like, okay, we're going to vote for you. Biden is a little bit down to a guy with 91 criminal charges who was just found liable of committing fraud. I don't know, like, that seems like a big deal to me. That seems like a big deal to me. Now, I know that he's saying, well, I don't believe the polls, but like I'm trying to point out to him, The polls are actually correct that generic Democrats beat generic Republicans, and that's what we've seen in these recent elections. It's true that it's maybe a little understated in the polls, but again, the main point here is generic Democrat is polling well, and generic Democrats are winning elections. When it comes to uh, Trump versus Biden specifically, 
It's the opposite, right? You could have a scenario, guys, where down-ballot Democrats do better, but Trump wins the presidency. You can have that. You can have that. So uh, th- this idea like, oh, I don't believe the polls at all, um, I don't agree. I mean, I think you can and should look at it with a grain of salt. I think it's good for what it is, which is a general indicator. So there's a lot more to it than what he says, but his like total poll denialism is honestly silly. So even when you like the the big example of like, oh my God, the polls are horrible and they're never right. That like when that narrative first started getting out there was after the 2016 election. But to be fair, the polls weren't that off in 2016. You had all the pollsters say, oh, you know, Hillary's going to beat Trump. But when you actually looked at what the polls were saying and what the vote count was when all was said and done, it's actually very close. Hillary beat Trump by like 3 million votes in the popular vote. And, you know, that's kind of right in line with where the polls were nationally. The issue was that in the specific swing states is where Trump, like where he needed to get support to win is exactly where he got support and where he edged out Hillary. Now, have the polls been perfect? No. But have they been totally useless? No. So in 2016, there was a... Excuse me. There was a slight, <coughs> slight overstatement to um, how good Democrats would do, but in the election since then, it's been the opposite. They've been slightly overstating how well Republicans are doing, but it's still a, a generally a good barometer, right? So, and I was look, I was going based off the polls when I predicted that there wasn't going to be a red wave. Everybody around me was saying red wave, red wave, red wave. I was like, I don't know about that. And I was going based off of the polls. I was going based off of the evidence that we had. So to respond more directly here, I want to show you the numbers that he's poo-pooing. So let's start with this. Real clear politics. This is Trump versus Biden general election. Now, to be fair, it is true that two polls just came out, Economist YouGov and Morning Consult, where Biden's up two in one of them and Biden's up one in the other. These are the best polls for him in a while. Because as you see before then, it goes Trump plus four, Trump plus six, Trump plus two, Trump plus six, Trump plus two, Trump plus four, Trump plus two, Trump plus two. So Trump went on a streak there of like really uh, beating him in every poll nationally. Now I'm going to get to the states in just a second because that's what matters more. But now you might look at this and say, well, that's Trump versus Biden head to head. Well, you need to add in Cornell West, for example. Okay, well, when you do that, it's Trump plus two, Trump plus two, Trump plus one, Trump plus one to an average of Trump plus 1.5. So all of the polls have Trump with a slight lead when you have Cornell West in the race. And when you add Kennedy in the race, you have similar scenarios. So the most recent poll from Harvard Harris, Trump plus eight. Trump plus two, Trump plus one, Trump plus one. The best poll for Biden was October uh, 17th. Biden plus seven, Biden plus one, Biden plus one before then. So look, overall, you have a situation where Trump is up like about two points on average when you look at the the recent polling, okay? But here's the problem. So New York Times poll came out. This was, I believe, November 5th. And what they found here is Trump is leading Biden in five of the six swing states. Nevada, Georgia, Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Those are all states Biden won in 2020. Now, Trump is leading him in all of those states. Uh, Biden led Trump in Wisconsin, but is down four points in Pennsylvania, five in Arizona, six in Georgia, five in Michigan, and 10 in Nevada. 
71% say Biden was too old, including 54% of Biden's own supporters say he's too old. So look, my point here is, yeah, you could like, you could be selective or cherry pick or be somewhat dismissive of some of the polls. But when you look at all of them in their totality, don't act like there's not a problem here. Because again, what this reminds me of is almost like the, the cocksure arrogance in 2016, where well, obviously Hillary's going <laughs> to... Now remember, this is coming from a guy, I, it wasn't that long ago that I was saying Biden had a 60% chance of winning, Trump had a 40% chance of winning. I had Biden as a pretty solid favorite. But now I think it's the reverse. Now I think it's Trump 60%, Biden 40%, might even be Trump 65, Biden 35. And like this attitude is the exact attitude that might help facilitate a loss. You know what I mean? Like, I, honestly, I am at the point now where I think almost any Democrat, any generic Democrat would fare better in the election than Biden. Because you mix in these horrible poll numbers, terrible in the swing states. When you go direct issue for direct issue, he's really underwater. Like you ask about the economy, you ask about foreign policy, you ask about immigration on each individual issue. Trump is eating his lunch. And you look at that and you think, yeah, if you just take a random Democrat, if Biden drops out and whichever Democrat wins it, even if it's somebody I don't like at all, just the fact that he's not the optics, like not a million years old and not currently backing a genocide in Gaza, right? Like it just things that are actually really important. I do think any generic Democrat would beat would beat Trump and do way better. And it's kind of amazing to me that this hasn't become the majority position, even in the media. That's kind of surprising to me because I do find the evidence overwhelming. Now, by the way, am I saying it's impossible Biden wins? No, of course not. Um, but you can only ignore so much of the evidence. Like, how would Joe Scarborough respond to the fact that uh, Biden had 59% uh, support among Arab Americans and Muslim Americans? Now that's down to 17%. 17%. Biden is hemorrhaging young voters. And he needs them desperately in order to win. He's hemorrhaging them. Among Latinos, he should have a 30 or 40 point lead. You know what his lead is? Four points. So, I mean, what else is there to say, man? Like, he's being very smug and dismissive. But the fact of the matter is, in a world that made sense, Biden would be up 15 points and he would be up 15 points because he got Build Back Better through because he wasn't supporting a genocide in Gaza because he was campaigning. He's not even campaigning. He's not even. I've never heard him say Trump has 91 criminal charges. I've never heard him say that. That's insane. Your opponent has 91 criminal charges. You never bring that up. Your opponent said, I want to suspend the Constitution. You never bring that up. Like he's not campaigning and his polls are horrible. And it's like. I don't know what you're expecting to happen. I don't know what you're expecting to happen. It's like they're really relying on the fact that we hope Trump is going to be in prison by the time the election happens. And yeah, in that instance, Biden would win. Any Democrat. We could run a ham sandwich and the ham sandwich would win. But if that doesn't happen, we're in trouble. And you're rolling the dice with having a hardcore authoritarian win. It's, uh, it's truly unacceptable. It's truly pathetic. But you can't deny all these polls. You can't deny all this evidence. If you want to say, hey, certain ones don't count for certain specific reasons, I'm open to that conversation. But rejecting all of this, I don't buy it. And again, I'm the guy who was defending Biden for a while saying, I think he's the favorite. But that absolutely has changed recently. And they're refusing to acknowledge it. Because the main thing is here, for Democrats to win 
the the electoral college they've had to win the popular vote by like four points and we're looking at a situation where on average trump is up two points so that's a full six points off of where he needs to be to to sort of shake them out of their complacency think about this this is the most up trump has been on anybody at any point in his political career campaigning he was never up an average of two on hillary ever he was never up an average of two on Biden the last time around. Never. This is the most up he's ever been. And Morning Joe just poo-poos it. It's that like smug, condescending, arrogant MSNBC resistance liberalism. And it's, I don't know. It sort of strikes me as suicidal, right? Like, really, you can't acknowledge that almost anybody else would probably be better. It's just purposefully obtuse. So this is something I've been thinking a lot about. Uh, as we all know, Joe Biden is refusing to do a debate with Marianne Williamson, who is his first challenger, but also with Dean Phillips, who's now a centrist Democrat who's challenging him. Of course, he's refusing to debate with Cenk Uger, who is going through court cases right now to determine whether or not he can be on the ballot because he's a naturalized citizen, not a natural born citizen. But either way, Biden has three opponents in the Democratic primary. And the idea of a debate is going, going gonzo. It, it was never in the room, okay? It's, and the DNC is making that perfectly clear. The Biden campaign is making that perfectly clear. We will not be hosting debates. So look, right off the bat, my thought on that is maybe the Democratic Party should change their name because uh, democracy is in the name and they're like, we're going to go ahead and say we disagree with democracy. And by the way, if Biden's so convinced that like, oh, it, I'm such a strong candidate with great ideas, then he should happily take the debate and he should crush all of his opponents. But he's not doing that. So uh, now there are multiple reasons for that. They want to protect him. They don't view any of the candidates running against him as quote unquote serious candidates. Uh, but either way, as on, on principle, that's like absurd. Of course, he should uh, take the debate. Now, at the same time, on... Uh, the Trump side, he's refusing to take part in any of the Republican primary debates. And, you know, it's kind of pathetic now because in retrospect, you look at it and you go, well, I guess maybe that was the right idea because he's still leading by like 30 points or 40 points. His numbers haven't budged and everybody else has been slipping. So from a strategic perspective, you look at it and you go, oh, well, I mean, he got what he wanted out of it, right? But Again, if you're running to be the most powerful person, not just in the U.S., but in the world, yeah, you should be mandated to, you know, debate and discuss and, like, have your ideas tested and see how quick you are on your feet and all that stuff. I'm not saying that debate is the best way to determine uh, who's the better candidate or what the truth is, but there's certainly a degree of transparency that uh, happens when you have a debate where everybody can see you know, here's this person right in front of my eyes. How are they talking? What are they saying? So on and so forth. And like the two people who are almost certainly going to be the nominees, they're hiding. They're nowhere to be found. So I tell you all of that to tell you this. Even a debate between Trump and Biden appears to be in question. We might not even have that. That, I mean, that's, Incredible to me. So here, let me walk you through this. This is an Axios. The 2024 presidential debates have been unveiled. 
Uh, so they say the Commission on Presidential Debates announced Monday that the three 2024 presidential debates will be held next year on September 16th, October 1st, and October 9th. The first presidential debate will take place at Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas, followed by Virginia State University in Petersburg, Virginia, and University of Utah in Salt Lake City. The sole vice presidential debate is set to take place on September 25th at Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania. The United States general election debates, watched live worldwide, are a model for many other countries. This is a quote. The opportunity to hear and see leading candidates address serious issues in a fair and neutral setting. CPD co-chairs Frank Farenkopf and Antonio Hernandez said in a statement, Former President Trump has skipped all three Republican primary debates and has urged the Republican National Committee to cancel the remaining primary debates. Trump has said that he wants to debate Biden. Okay, so Trump's in for a general election debate. He and I have uh, de- have to definitely debate. That's what I love. The two of us have to debate, Trump said on Fox News in June. The Biden campaign has not yet said whether he plans to participate in the debates. So Trump is skipping the primary debates, as is Biden. They're refusing to even have primary debates. Trump wants to debate Biden for the general election, but Biden... The Biden campaign hasn't agreed to it, even though the dates are floated and everything. They've heard nothing from the Biden campaign. What are we doing here, man? Look, the the reason why this story is just such a slap in the face is that, like, the remaining remnants and residue of democracy in this country feel like they're going, going, gonzo. You know what I mean? Like, there was this very highfalutin facade and veneer of seriousness about our elections and the process and our institutions. And then in moments like this, it feels like that melts away. So, I mean, the most obvious point is for congressional races, the person who raises the most money, the candidate who raises the most money wins over 90% of the time. So that alone is like, hey, this kind of is not all that democratic. That Princeton study which basically said the wealthy and corporations, they get what they want. The the opinion of mainstream, of the mainstream public, the majority opinion of public, of the public, that hardly ever gets done. So in a quite literal sense, you have more of like an oligarchy or a kleptocracy rule of by and for the corporations and the billionaires and, and the powerful. Um, but now even like the whole show that's put on, you know, a, a primary, uh, primary elections, general elections, like the parts of that, the debates, like it's sort of a huge part of it, even to keep up this facade of being a democracy. And now that's even crumbling away. So look, I don't know if the Biden team is going to agree to it. I don't know if they're going to agree to it because they might feel like this is going to hurt Biden more because he's you know, 71% of the country says he's too old to do a second term. Even a majority of uh, the Democratic base says that. And they might feel like there's more downside than upside to uh, to do the debate. And so they might actually skip it. So not only do you have primary debates being skipped by Trump and the DNC refusing to host any, even though Biden has challengers, but now you have even the general election debates might be going away. There's not another article about that the other day where they're basically saying the same thing I was, which is like, this is all tradition but we don't people don't realize like how weak and feeble and fragile this is that like we're just going based off the good graces of the of the candidates but if they decide we're, we don't want to do them anymore they just don't have to do them 
And so debates will be would be a thing of the past. Oh, man, I hate it. I hate it so much, man. I hate it so much. Look, I said it before. I'll say it again. My take on this is make it mandatory. Make it a law. I think Congress should get together. The House of Representatives should pass a bill mandating that if you're running for office and you're above a certain certain percentage, you have to debate. I think House should pass it. Senate should pass it. Biden should sign it. But look, that's the guy right now who hasn't even agreed to the debate yet. So maybe he wouldn't even sign it because he clearly doesn't want to do the debate. So I hope he changes his mind. I hope this flips. But even if even if Biden does agree and Trump's still in for a general election debate, let's not forget how much of an egregious slap in the face it is to the country that Trump is refusing to show up to the Republican primary debates and Biden is refusing debate. Forget a debate. He ain't having any town halls. He's not having any conversations. He's not answering any questions on, you know, the other candidates. They literally just pretend like the other candidates don't exist. And believe you me, that is strategic. Because if there's one thing that is guaranteed to snuff a campaign out in the crib, it's indifference. Indifference from the other candidates, indifference from the media. If, if they act like you don't exist, you functionally don't exist. Because only the people who are the biggest political junkies are even going to know that you're running. And what's that, 5% of the population, right? So it's really grotesque, man. It's really grotesque. It's very, it's such like a sly authoritarian move. You know, like they have ways of acting in a very undemocratic fashion while pretending like they're not being undemocratic. I hate it. Make the debates. The debate should be a law. It should absolutely be a law. Um, and we'll wrap up. Let me give you a little bit more of this article because there's some interesting facts in here. The Nonpartisan Commission on Presidential Debates, formed in 1987 and sponsored by Republicans and Democrats, has sponsored every presidential debate since since the election in 1988. To qualify for next year's debates, candidates must appear on enough state ballots to have at least a mathematical chance of securing an electoral college majority uh, per the commission. And candidates must also have an average of 15% in five national polls. See, this is the other trick that's done is, and the DNC sets their own rules and the RNC sets their own rules on that, but, and we saw this uh, in the last election, they'll tell you, okay, you have to be polling at least 2% uh, in at least three polls or whatever, and then you show up and you, you've met the criteria, you've passed the test, but they just move the goalposts. And it ha- even, even happened this election to um, Larry Elder, who is running on the Republican side. He's uh, since dropped out, but he met the polling threshold. But then when he showed up, they were just, Fox News was like, we're, we're not letting you debate because we don't accept, you know, whatever one of the polling companies was. And it's just, it, it was arbitrary, right? They didn't tell him beforehand, you can't use one of those companies. It's just like they made it up to try to exclude him. And this is what we see. Like they make the criteria too strict or they move the goalposts and change the criteria on you to try to limit the scope of the debate to try to limit who's allowed to talk. Um, And even the idea of like, oh, you have to appear on enough state ballots. But like, certainly for primary elections, you do understand to get on a lot of these state ballots, sometimes it costs a tremendous amount of money to do it. And so there's ways to try to weasel out of having a true democracy with all different sorts of voices. It comes down to like, you need to be well-connected, you need to be accepted by the establishment, You need to have a tremendous amount of money, which means usually you have to be backed by big donors. Like, they make it impossible on purpose. And it's it's really messed up, man. 
So there should be a law that you have to debate. Uh, the standard should be reasonable, not extreme, right? It should be over 2% in, in two or three polls or whatever, but that's it. That's it. I think the DNC had like a, a small donor threshold too, or if you get over a certain number of small donors, you were allowed on. But anyway, we're all lost in the weeds now, but the fact of the matter is uh, debates are seem to be slowly but surely sort of phasing out. And to a political junkie like me, that's really, really sad and upsetting because it's like a cornerstone of American politics. It's something that I absolutely love. And um, it looks like even the veneer and the facade of democracy is now slipping away even more if these things go away. So we've talked quite a bit about how Biden's poll numbers are plummeting. <clears throat> and uh, the biggest the biggest points of concern, I would say, are Arab and Muslim Americans. He was at 59% with them, and then he dropped all the way to 17%. That's astonishing. So, of course, backing Israel's destruction of Gaza is making him hemorrhage support in that community. And by the way, that's going to matter for some key swing states. That voting demographic is going to matter deeply for some key swing states. So, horrible, horrible decision. The other group of people he's hemorrhaging are Latino voters. You know, he should be up by 30 or 40 points with that group, and he's not. He's up by four. Devastating. Absolutely devastating. But perhaps the the biggest demographic that he's really in trouble with, young people. Young people. Biden needs a lot of young people to come out and vote for him, for him to win. Well, guess what? They're running away at 1,000 miles an hour. And so what's Biden's reaction to that in order to try to get them back on board. This is so sad. Look at this. Exclusive. This is an Axios. Biden emails 800,000 student loan borrowers about forgiven debt. More than 800,000 student loan borrowers are set to receive a message from President Biden Tuesday afternoon. The email, shared in advance with Axios, is a direct appeal from the president to beneficiaries of his administration's debt forgiveness push, as his approval rating among Democrats hit a record low last month, jeopardizing his 2024 re-election bid. Quote, I hope this relief gives you a little more breathing room, Biden's Tuesday email states. I've heard from countless people who have told me that relieving the burden of student loan debt will allow them to support themselves and their families or move forward with the plans they've put on hold. I'm proud that we were able to give borrowers like you the relief you earned, the email said. I promise you that as long as I am president, I will never stop fighting for hardworking American families. The 813,000 borrowers receiving the email were those who weren't accurately credited from for student loan payments that should have given them forgiveness or people placed into forbearance by loan servicers who violated Department of Education policies. The email recipients to share what the relief means to them. The email asks recipients to share what the relief means to them and blames errors and administrative failures for shortcomings in the student loan forgiveness process. Biden's administration has forgiven $127 billion in student loan debt for nearly 3.6 million borrowers to date. About 2.9 million borrowers who signed up for the Biden administration's save plan now have a payment of $0. Eliminating student debt was one of Biden's signature campaign promises, but the Supreme Court struck down his biggest relief plan in June. Since then, his administration has unveiled other relief proposals, including one prioritizing borrowers experiencing financial hardship. So, look, here's the most important point about this. We covered this thing in detail, 50,000 Ways to Sunday. Every single move that happened with this uh, student loan debt reduction, we reported on this show. And the most recent maneuver, which, in my opinion, was a devastatingly terrible move for Biden, is they narrowed the scope even more of the student loan debt reduction. Now, I'm sure they would argue, hey, we feel like we have to do this in order for this to not be struck down 
by the Supreme Court. That's my guess as to what they would say. But you can't narrow the scope even more and then turn around and send out you know, letters bragging about the forgiveness you did do, even though you just made your own forgiveness weaker than it was. And now you're basically just trying to remind people, hey, remember when I did some student loan debt reduction? Like, you're... You like that, right? Like, you gonna vote for me? Please vote for me. Please. That's the vibe that this has. It's honestly a vibe of desperation. Like, hey, you remember these little... You remember these little things that I did that helped out? Now, look, I've been more than fair to Biden. In fact, I got heat for how fair and objective I think I was when it comes to Biden. I've done long segments where I break down all the areas where I think we made some real uh, positive movement, all the policies that Biden did that I thought were phenomenal. I've listed those and I've listed all the areas where I think he's failing. But the fact of the matter is this, and I'm I'm just saying this as, as objectively as possible, like uh, as a, a political viewer explaining to Biden what needs to be done for him to have a prayer in the next election, what I would say to him is this. Instead of sending out emails where you're like, hey, the little bit I did for you, you like that? We're good? Can you please vote for me? Instead of doing that, Biden already decided, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to snub the Supreme Court by after they slapped down his original plan saying, I'm going to do the Higher Education Act and still reduce some student loan debt. Well, if you're going to go around the court anyway, and you believe, as I do, that you actually do have the authority on, under the plain face reading of the, the Higher Education Act. You do have the authority. The Secretary of Education could wipe out all the debt that the U.S. government holds, which, by the way, is like 90% of the debt. Why would you not just do that? Because here's the thing. If Biden did eliminate all of the student loan debt held by the federal government, which, again, is about 90% of it, and he did, did it through the Higher Education Act, And then he turns around and tells the Supreme Court to suck his nuts. And he tells the Supreme Court, it's already done. We already wiped the debt slate clean. So even if the Supreme Court orders, you're not allowed to do that. Well, guess what? It's too late. Money's already gonzo. There's there's nothing we could do now. It's over. If you want to to try to reverse engineer and decide who you're going to charge among the students, you guys don't have the infrastructure to do that. But be my guest. Go ahead and try. If mine were to do that, then I think this letter would be a good idea. And you could even do it in the, in, in the form of, it's not a letter. You're literally sending them checks for whatever payments are outstanding for them. The full amount, 100% of it. Here's a check signed by President Biden. Well, then I'd be out here singing his praises. Then I'd be out here going, this is smart and this could work. But when you do the student loan debt reduction, it gets slapped down you try it again a different way, but then you narrow it more. You can't like, you can't move it in the wrong direction and then like kind of brag about it and remind people, hey, please vote for me because I did this thing. It just strikes, it's just weak. You know what I'm saying? It's just weak. And look, just as much as any other reasonable person in this country, I want to see Trump go down. But for Trump to go down, Biden's going to need to get his shit together, do what I'm talking about with student loan debt, and that's just one example. He would also have to stop arming Israel to the teeth and supporting them absolutely obliterating Gaza. Like, there are some things that are uh, seemingly are moral red lines to young people. One of them is supporting a genocide. I know those wacky, wacky young people with their weird priorities of, like, being anti-genocide. So, uh, 
eliminate all the student loan debt, stop arming Israel to obliterate Gaza, and uh, then I think we'd it'd be a different ballgame, right? But the fact of the matter is, most of the good stuff done in the Biden administration was earlier in his administration. And uh, there's a lot of, hey, what have you done for me lately? There's a lot of that going on. And it makes sense. And the other problem is, for the election, is people forget. Trump's been out of office now for a while, so people forget how much he was despised, how much he was hated. So now when you look at the polls, it's a lot of rose-colored glasses. And it always works like this. Time, unfortunately, heals all wounds. If you look at George W. Bush's polling numbers, they're way higher now than they ever were when he was in office towards the end. He was despised. at the time. He was in 26% approval rating. Dick Cheney had like a 9% approval rating. These people were despised. But when they're gone for so long, all of a sudden, boom, the, the numbers go up. And there's a little bit of that going on with Trump mixed with Biden sort of supporting a genocide and not much else at the moment. And so this just smells of desperation. And uh, I don't think it's going to help. I don't think it's going to help. I don't know if it's going to hurt. But I don't think it's going to help uh, because it's it's a little bit too little too late, isn't it? That's what I think. So the Republicans are using their House majority to do exactly what you would have expected them to do. They're going to hold hearings on Social Security in order to attempt to cut it. So here's what it says in Raw Story. The Republican-controlled House Budget Committee is set to convene a hearing Wednesday to examine legislation that would establish a so-called fiscal commission for the U.S. debt, a proposal that critics have called a Trojan horse for Social Security and Medicare cuts. Look, it's not even much of a Trojan horse. I mean, it's actually kind of straightforward that they're, oh, our debt and the deficit. Oh, my God, we got to do something about it, bro. Hey, what are the things we should cut? Oh, let's go with the thing that we've been saying we should cut for decades and decades and decades, namely... Payment for your grandma and grandpa. House Speaker Mike Johnson is a longtime proponent of Social Security cuts. By the way, incredibly Christian. He's an evangelical fundamentalist Christian. But he missed the part of the Bible where Jesus like looks after the poor and the sick and the elderly and the downtrodden. Um, House Speaker Mike Johnson, a longtime proponent of Social Security cuts, described such a commission as one of his top priorities... Of all the things to do, cut payments for grandma. After winning the gavel last month, and right-wing organizations such as the Coke-connected group FreedomWorks have endorsed the idea, of course they have, a fiscal commission of the kind backed by congressional Republicans and some conservative Democrats, including Senator Joe Manchin, oh boy, would be tasked with analyzing Social Security, Medicare, and other U.S. trust fund programs and developing policy recommendations ostensibly aimed at improving the program's finances. The policy proposals would then be put on a fast track in both the House and the Senate. So, remember guys, this is the like Orwellian weasel words that are used. We don't want to cut the program. We want to reform the program. We don't want to cut the program. We want to save the program. This is the way that they talk. But what they really mean is, we're going to cut Social Security and Medicare. That's what, that's what they really mean. And this is, the, this is the aspect of politics that I find so deeply disingenuous. I actually could respect much more Say a libertarian who comes or like Thomas Massey, if you talk to him, he might say it straight up because he's he's ideological and he has a position and he thinks he's right. So he'll say, yeah, I want to cut Social Security and Medicare. I wish we didn't even have Social Security and Medicare. That's what he would say because he's honest and direct and straightforward. But all these other Weasley politicians know, hey, this is a political third rail. Nobody likes it if you try to cut these programs. No actual voters, even Republican voters don't like it if you try to cut these programs. So that's why they changed the language. Oh, we're not cutting it. 
We're reforming it. We're not cutting it. We're saving it. And the tale is old as time. They even tried to do this. Back in the George W. Bush administration, they tried to do this. They tried to privatize Social Security. They say Social Security Works and other progressive organizations have stressed that Social Security does not add to the federal debt and warned against the growing push for a fiscal commission. Quote, that's code for a death panel designed to cut Social Security and Medicare behind closed doors. Social Security Works wrote in a social media post on Monday in response to the impending hearing. MAGA Mike Johnson and his fellow Republicans desperately want this commission to give bipartisan cover to benefit cuts. Democrats must stand united against it. The House Budget Committee's Wednesday hearing will feature testimony from Manchin and Mitt Romney, who earlier this month teamed up to introduce legislation that would establish a 16-member bipartisan bicameral fiscal commission compromised of 12 elected officials and four outside experts. Manchin and Romney have both said they're not running for re-election next year. Alex Lawson, executive director of Social Security Works, called Manchin and Romney cowards who are quitting and heading out of town but want to set up a closed-door commission to cut Social Security and Medicare on the way out the door. The only reason to make changes to Social Security via a closed-door commission is to cut already modest earned benefits. According to a legislative summary released by Manchin's office, the commission would produce a report and propose a package of legislative solutions to improve the long-term fiscal condition of the federal government. Oh, it's so weaselly, these words. Stabilize the ratio of public debt to GDP within a 15-year period and improve solvency of federal trust funds over a 75-year period. That's all fancy speak for we're gonna cut it. If the commission approves proposed legislative language, it would receive expedited consideration in both chambers. In other words, it's going to jump the line. So this is viewed as like one of the most important things that we must work on right now. Quick, take food out of grandma's mouth. The summary continues, quote, while 60 votes would be required to invoke cloture prior to final passage in the Senate, only a simple majority would be needed for the motion to proceed, which would be privileged. Wow. So now, of course, they go on to explain in this article something that all of you guys already know, which is the way the tax works right now, the payroll tax works right now. That's the social security tax. You get taxed on your first $160,000 per year, but everything over that isn't taxed at all. So the way you could fix social security and make it solvent, as far as the eye could see, is to just get rid of that uh, payroll tax cap. And even if you just raise it, forget getting rid of it, even if you just raise it to like a million dollars a year, you would... I mean, Social Security would be flush with money as far as the eye can see. So this isn't actually a problem. This isn't actually a problem. It's just that these guys want to raid Social Security and Medicare. They've been horny to do this for decades now. This is what they wanted to do. Uh, Now, thankfully, Biden has said repeatedly, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to cut it. So even if something theoretically got to Biden's desk, he wouldn't sign it. But remember, Biden, prior to being president, also wanted to cut Social Security and Medicare, and he talked about it quite openly. So which Biden is sitting in the the White House right now? I don't know which one, right? Do I think Trump would sign cuts to Social Security and Medicare? Yes, I do. And I also think he would brag about it and say, I'm not cutting it, I'm saving it. I'm not cutting it, I'm reforming it. I'm not cutting it, I'm making it better. When at the end of the day, if people on Social Security are getting less money every month, that's a cut. That's a cut. And by the way, the media are going to be their best friends because they always fall for the head fakes and the tricks in the Weasley language. All of the time, they fall for that. Now, by the way, let's reflect on this fact for just a second. This commission is all, all the fiscal responsibility and debt. We need to fix this. 
this is like what the nominal reason for this hearing is. Oh yeah, we have to get our fiscal house in order with all this debt and the deficits that we run. We just told you the other day, the Pentagon failed its sixth audit in a row. Sixth audit in a row. The Pentagon can't account for 61% of the money that's given to them. 61%. That means they literally could only track 39% of their funds. If you want to talk about reducing the debt, if you want to talk about saving money, I'm literally not interested in this conversation unless you say, we're going to look at the military first. That's the first thing on the chopping block. Why? Well, I don't know. They can't count for more than $1.5 trillion. I mean, this is, guys, let's be serious here. This is, we're being robbed. The Pentagon is looting the treasury. Raytheon, Boeing, uh, Honeywell, all these companies are looting the treasury. And of course, everybody looks the other way. Why? Because they pay the politicians bribes. They pay them campaign contributions and, and they pass these no-bid contracts for them to get and they look the other way and it doesn't matter that uh, they're effectively stealing trillions of dollars. It doesn't matter. They get away with it. But, but, God forbid your grandma be able to pay her rent. God forbid your grandma be able to afford three meals a day. That is unacceptable. That we're going to have to revisit. This is why nobody takes these people seriously. This is why this is a sick joke. This is why everybody realizes the government is insanely corrupt. Even if people don't know the details and the specifics, they know it on some intuitive gut level. That something's not right here. Something's not right. Because the first stuff they put on the chopping block, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and then you saw the Republican budget that they tried to pass. What did they have in there? Cuts to the Head Start program and Meals on Wheels and baby formula for babies from uh, economically downtrodden families. Like, all of the things that would literally be the last thing you would cut if you care about prioritizing based on morality. That's the first thing they want to cut. So, hell no, I say to this. Hell no, I say to this. If you want to do anything with Social Security, you lift the cap on the tax and make rich people pay a little more, and then everybody's happy. And if anything, I mean, Bernie proposed this back when he ran, expand Social Security. I believe in Social Security for all as effectively like a UBI check, right? A while ago, I didn't support UBI. Then I learned more about it and I saw how successful it is in these pilot programs. And I thought, that's actually a fantastic idea. What's one of the great ways to improve somebody's life very quickly? Well, take people who are poor and give them a little bit of money. <laughs> and uh, that tends to help out a lot. So anyway, I'm for Social Security for all, but these guys are for cutting it. And that's uh, those are even the more moderate ones are for cutting it. There's some that just want to do away with it completely or totally privatize it. Because, you know, what happens if you turn all those funds over to Wall Street? I'm sure there'll be no shenanigans with that. I'm sure it'll be okay the next time we have a giant economic downturn. I'm sure your money's going to be safe. Uh, this is crazy. And this is what they're focusing on. This is what they're focusing on right now. This is what is hopping the line in terms of priorities. Cutting money to your grandma and grandpa. So I'm sure all of you guys remember one of the most infamous Hillary Clinton moments of all time, which was during the 2016 campaign when she said uh, that Trump's supporters are, quote, deplorables. 
Now, to be fair, she actually didn't say they're all deplorables, which is how it was reported in a whole bunch of different places. She said about half of them are deplorables. Now, does that make the comment better? Yes, it does. Does that make it completely correct? Mm, not necessarily. I mean, I actually think it's fair to say at least half of Trump supporters are what I call TFG, too far gone. Like, you're never going to get through them no matter how much evidence or how good your arguments are, etc. But it is like, like, look, if you're a presidential candidate, it's just a clunky, stupid thing to say. And you're like inviting backlash if you say something like that. And she should have known that. But of course, she's she's just not a very skilled politician. I think that's obvious. She's actually really bad at being a politician. But anyway, that was a huge moment. and went mega viral. Everybody talked talked about it. Even to this day, people bring it up. Right. But there's a really good comparison here to be had because Trump not too long ago, came out and basically described his political opponents as, quote, vermin. And he does this on a daily basis. He'll go out there and say, the people who are, are against me are Marxist, communist, fascists. He just throws like every label that sounds negative, just th throw it out there at his political opponents. But he even went as far as to say vermin in a recent post. Okay, well, Media Matters decided... Let's take a moment here and go through how much media coverage there was of the deplorables comment versus Trump's vermin comment. Because it, it is very analogous, right? Like the kind of language, how it's sort of like dehumanizing to people who don't agree with you, etc. Okay, so here's what they say. Major news outlets devoted dramatically less coverage to former President Donald Trump describing his political enemies as vermin earlier this month than they provided then-Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton's 2016 basket of deplorables remark in the week following those respective comments. So according to a Media Matters review, the three, the big three broadcast TV networks provided 18 times more coverage of Clinton's 2016 deplorables comment than Trump's vermin remark on their combined nationally syndicated morning news, evening news, and Sunday morning political talk shows. 18 times more coverage for deplorables compared to vermin. CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC mentioned Clinton's deplorables comment nearly nine times more than Trump's vermin comment. Print reports that mentioned Clinton's statement outnumbered those that mentioned Trump's 29 to 1 across the five highest circulating U.S. newspapers. Wow. So here's what it would look like in chart uh, in a chart form. Broadcast TV news coverage of Clinton deplorables and Trump vermin comments. Um, as you can see, deplorables got way more legs. Now, look, a fair response to this is like, yeah, but Trump does so many outrageous things on a daily basis that like some of the things are just not going to break through. I actually think that's fair. And I don't think you can look at this analysis and come to the conclusion what the media likes Trump more than they liked Hillary. No, I mean, Fox News likes Trump more than Hillary. Newsmax and One American News likes Trump more than Hillary. But of course, CNN and MSNBC and the Nightly News, they largely preferred Hillary to Trump. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. So I don't think that's the takeaway here. The takeaway to me is this. Oftentimes, it really is Fox News that sets the agenda and then many of the others are forced to follow. Many of the other networks are forced to follow. So here's an example. Remember... There's always like before an election, there's always this like caravan of migrants coming to the U.S. And Fox News starts with it. They they harp away. I mean, they go all in on covering this stuff nonstop. And then eventually, after like a day of coverage, all of a sudden, all the nightly news programs are talking about it. CNN is talking about it. They kind of they're so persistent and over the top that 
It's like they force other networks to cover the same sort of garbage that they cover. Um, because it would feel like to the other networks, hey, we're not being fair to the other side if we don't bring up this thing. And I've seen this cycle happen time and time again. So in the case of the deplorables comment, I have no doubt Fox News led the charge talking about, oh my God, she called Republicans deplorables. This is unacceptable. This is crazy. Let's do 87 segments about it. And then that forced the hand of the CNNs and the MSNBCs and the nightly news channels to be like, yeah, she did say deplorables and this is kind of a big moment. And, you know, it's something that we should all be talking about. Now, on the flip side, you don't have a CNN or an MSNBC or any left outlet setting the agenda, right? So when Trump called uh, his political opponents vermin, they didn't really lead the way. CNN and MSNBC didn't give that breathless, endless coverage talking about how incredible it is, you know, he's using uh, a Nazi-like language, and he, he also said the uh, immigrants poison the blood of the nation or something like that, which again is like a direct quote from, from Hitler. But you don't have the networks sort of harping away on, he said vermin, he said vermin, he's dehumanizing all of his political opponents, you know, he's not interested in a real exchange of ideas, he's just... He's just hateful, and he just despises the other side. How's he going to represent all Americans when, you know, he clearly hates half the country? You didn't have the more liberal outlets do that, and so Fox News' hand wasn't forced to cover. By the way, I don't even think Fox News would be forced under any circumstances to cover something that CNN or MSNBC is making a big deal. But, like, in other words, you have some people in the news space who are leaders and others who are followers, and I think Fox News is more leaders and all the other outlets are more followers, so the right can set an agenda, make a story really big, and drag along the other outlets to cover it, whereas you very rarely, I, I, always, I say this all the time, guys, but I feel like the, the outrage meter of liberal media outlets, it's broken. I feel like they get outraged at all the, the, the wrong things, like... I wish they had focused more on Trump's terrible, disastrous policy record and talked about why that makes him dangerous and why that makes him bad, as opposed to usually it's, you know, they get all worked up over tweets, you know, or he's he's being mean to Bette Midler. Like, this is the stuff that they care about. And it's like, that's not going to break through. But this is a great example here. It's a really interesting analysis. They cover the deplorable comment way more than the vermin comment, even though those are very comparable situations. And, um... I actually do think more of a campaign really highlighting how dehumanizing the language is to his opponents. I think that would have been good. You know, we try, I try to cover it on this show when he says things that I think are uh, truly psychotic that are shine a spotlight into how he thinks. I try to cover it as much as humanly possible. But um, clearly, mainstream media, they're, not, they're just not up to the task. They're really just not up to the task. So, it's wild, man. But that, that comment helped to end Hillary Clinton, right? The vermin comment from Trump is just like any random Tuesday when he's tweeting on the toilet while shitting at 3 a.m., right? Like, it's just, it's just another day. And it's almost like he has so many insane things so often that almost nothing pierces through anymore. It's an interesting dynamic that I don't think we'll ever see again. All right, guys, so uh, the weirdos and freaks and losers over at Fox News, they're going to give us an amazing moment here. Um, so they're talking about Hamas and Israel and Biden and Trump. And just wait until you hear Kaylee McEnany's theory as to 
What would have happened if Trump was in power and something like this occurred? Listen. That is the key question. And Maria, in all due respect, you know, you say they've been negotiating powerfully. Yes, we have gotten hostages back. We should have never been hostage because I don't believe this attack would have taken place on President Trump's watch. She doesn't think the October 7th attack on Israel by Hamas would have happened if Trump was in charge. I mean, how do you even respond to that? You do understand that Israel-Palestine has been an issue literally since the late 1940s with the partition plan, but also, honestly, before that, because you started to have Zionists come to uh, Palestine around 1900, right? But it became a much bigger issue with the UN partition plan. And, like, from then on, this has been one of the core conflicts in the world. It doesn't matter if, if Carrot Top was president there would have been something going on in the Middle East. Like, what are you talking about? You don't think Hamas would have done the attack because, what, they're scared of Trump? Look, I got news for you. It's not that Trump would have made it so Hamas never did an attack. One of the main reasons why Hamas did this attack is because of the Abraham Accords. Because Israel was making peace with other Middle Eastern countries, and what they were trying to do is work around the Palestinians, pretend like the Palestinians don't exist, work around them to normalize relations, and then effectively force an acceptance of permanent apartheid and occupation. And so when Hamas saw all these deals being made with the Abraham Accords, they said, oh no, you're not going to forget about us. And so that's one of the main reasons they attacked. Another one of the main reasons they attacked is because moving the embassy to Jerusalem was one of the biggest slaps in the face to Palestinians in a long time. And they're saying, oh, well, no, now we're going to defend ourselves and we're going to attack Israel. That's how they're thinking. She really claimed she, doesn't, she didn't think this attack would have happened and she didn't think there'd be any hostages if Trump was president. The way that they shamelessly make stuff up about how everything would be perfect if Trump was in office, it's astonishing to me. So this is another reason why people act like it's a cult. Because this is truly cult-like. This is truly, truly cult-like. Can you imagine thinking... Oh, everything would have been perfect in uh, Israel and Palestine if uh, Trump was president. Hamas never would have attacked. It's not like Hamas, you know, uh, has been attacking for a while. It's not like Israel has been occupying uh, and and doing apartheid for a while. They occupy, of course, the West Bank. They're basically doing a full blockade and embargo version of an occupation in Gaza. These obviously these issues predate Trump. And if anything, Trump ramped them up and made them worse by clearly taking the side of Israel in a way that goes even above and beyond most other U.S. presidents who also are uh, very helpful to Israel and give them whatever the hell they want. So what else is there to say about this? This is, uh, this is psycho talk. All right, guys, this is fun. So the other day, North Korea had an election and Kim Jong-un went to go vote in it. And we have a video. We have a propaganda video for you. You're going to see him going to vote, and you're going to see the crowd of cheering, adoring supporters who are so excited to see their dear leader, their dear meatball leader. Let's watch and we'll react. (laughs) 정의하는 김정은 동지께서는 열광의 환호를 울리는 선거자들에게 따뜻한 인사를 보내시며 선거장으로 향하시었습니다. 
김덕훈 동지, 리일란 동지, 오수영 동지, 김여정 동지, 현성월 동지가 동행했습니다. 김성은 동지께서는 군구 선거위원회 위원장으로부터 선거표를 받으시고 한경남도 인민회의 대의원 후보자인 용성기계연합기업소 선군추출공장 지배인 김충혁 동무와 함흥시 인민회의 대의원 후보자인 용성기계연합기업소 3기계직장 직장장 리철학 동무 함흥시 해안구역 인민회의 대의원 후보자인 해안구역 통계부 부부장 림철 동무에게 투표하셨습니다. 김성은 동지께서는 대의원 후보자들을 만나시고 이건 노동계급과 함흥시인민들의 믿음을 항상 자각하고 높은 애국적 열의와 창조적 노력으로 부강 조국 건설에 적극이 We're going to get right back to the crowd in a second. You just wait. You just wait for that adoring crowd. 이하며 인민의 권익과 요구를 옹호 실현하기 위해 분투하는 진정한 인민의 대표 참다운 인민의 충복이 되기를 바란다고 고무 격려해 주셨습니다. Here we go. 영성의 노동계급과 함흥시의 인민들은 경례하는 김성은 동지를 모시고 선거에 참가한 무상의 영광을 소중히 간직하고 우리의 혁명주권을 굳건히 다지며 인민대중 중심의 사회주의 우리 국가를 더욱 부강하게 하기 위한 투쟁에서 국민적 의무를 다해나갈 불같은 열의에 충만되어 있었습니다. Oh my god, man. It's amazing to me because it's like North Korea is just literally living in a different time, right? It's like 1942 there, right? Like, to not realize the way this is going to look to the rest of the world with your obviously fake enthusiastic crowd jumping and putting their arms in the air. Yay, yay, you're walking, Kim Jong-un. You're living. Yay, you're amazing. We love you so much, bro. How do you not know how fake this looks? How do you not know how fake this looks? But they're just stuck in a different era, man. They think like, oh, yeah, we fooled the West with this one. They think we. They think that pff, the crowd is really adoring him. By the way, Lord only knows what happens if you're not enthusiastic enough. Is the military going to drag you away and put you in a concentration camp? Like, I don't know, man. But it's a, a horrific situation over there. But okay, are you ready for the the most amazing fact about this? So Kim Jong Un did uh, the worst that anybody's done in an election in North Korea in decades. He only got. 99.86% of the vote. Whereas in previous elections, he got 100%. And his predecessor got 100%. 99.86%. <sighs> the other thing that apparently they don't understand is that, like, if you're going to steal an election, go with 56%, right? <laughs> go with, like, 54.2%. Like... Go with a number that is like reasonably possible, theoretically possible, that could actually happen. You know, even in a scenario where you have a president who's like beloved by the country and a crazy high approval rating, like the most I could see somebody getting is like 62%, right? This is like I got 99.86 and I did poorly compared to the last. Jesus Christ. Oh my God. Man. Hardcore authoritarian dictatorships are really something special, man. And I mean that in the most negative way possible. But like the, the propaganda level is so weak. The propaganda game is so pathetic. It's just inconceivably dumb. But they genuinely thought like, yeah, we're nailing it with this. Everybody's going to think I'm super popular. Everybody's going to think Kim Jong-un is the man. Oh, 
I feel terrible for those people, though. On a serious note, I feel terrible for those people, though. I mean, it's one thing to live, uh, you know, in a totalitarian system. It's another thing to live under that system and also be forced to pretend to love it and partake in the charade. Whoo! I love this tweet from uh, Soaked on Left Underneath. <laughs> this is Kim Jong-un on Twitter. It's not real, but... I think this may have been from Trump, right? My rallies are not covered properly by the media. They never discuss the real message and they never show the, cr- the crowd size or enthusiasm. If the disgusting and corrupt media covered me honestly and didn't put false meaning into the words I say, I would be beating Kim Ho, Cho- Ho Choi by 20%. <laughs> oh, man. All right. There you have it. It's both funny, but also incredibly sad. All right, guys, that's the show. I love you all very much. Everybody, please do me a big favor. Click subscribe to the channel, trying to continue to grow the community here. Uh, helps out, helps out the channel so much in the algorithm if you subscribe and it doesn't cost you anything. And it also helps my ego tremendously. So what's wrong with that? Let's go ahead and do that. Um, and that's all I got for you today, man. If you want to listen to the show on Spotify, you want to listen as an audio podcast, you can. We post the show over on Spotify. And you can always support the show on Patreon if you like, or Crystal Kyle and Friends on Substack. Those links are below. Get tip on YouTube with the thanks button. Again, I've never talked to an advertiser my entire time doing this show. I'm very proud of that. But you guys help build this show from the ground up. And that's all I got, man. Everybody have a great rest of your day. And I will talk to you guys tomorrow.